Welcome to the Clear to Close podcast with your host, local mortgage expert, Ryan Bolton. Ryan has the questions and answers, tips and tricks, do's and don'ts, and expert guests to explain all the steps needed to buy or sell real estate. And now it's time for the Clear to Close podcast. Hey everybody, Ryan Bolton here, local mortgage expert. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk with everybody today, and I have a couple news articles I wanted to read first. I figured it might be good to just let you know what's going on with average interest rates, things like that. So the bond market has actually softened a little bit this week, which helps interest rates. So that really is what plays into mortgage rates more than anything is where the bond market's at. So, But there's always talk when it comes to the Federal Reserve on exactly where they feel that market is going. So with bonds going down a little bit, inflation numbers are off their highs, the Fed had their two-day meeting that just ended this week, and they didn't cut interest rates, but there's a lot more talk that that may be on their next couple meetings. The next meeting is coming up in March on March 20th. That, that may be indications, just tone. I mean, you never really know what the Fed's going to do until they kind of do it, but you can kind of get indications that they didn't raise rates. Obviously, they've stopped doing that rate increase. They did most of 2023, and now we're starting to even see talk that they're going to be lowering interest rates maybe on the next couple meetings. The target number they're trying to get to is inflation under or near that 2% number, and it was up at 8 9 depending on which numbers you look at. So getting it back into that 2% range is where they're trying to get to. And one of their best tools is raising interest rates. So the cost for money goes up, so buying or, or new loan new loan creation slows down a little bit to let kind of the money supply catch up to the other supplies that are out there. So uh, it was a pretty big meeting this week. It was two days, and they didn't decide to raise interest rates, but there's a lot more tone, a lot more talk, a lot more easing is what they're talking about than the need to raise interest rates any further. So that's a good indication of where they feel this year is going to go. But I've said it a couple times in the podcast. I really think it's a wait and see year. I think a lot of it's going to be tied to election. A lot of it's going to be tied to just figuring out kind of the supply chains that are catching up and even even in them, themselves out since last year. So I really think you're going to see that is the general consensus. Uh, other good news is the GDP was a little stronger than they thought. Also, the labor market's a little stronger than they thought. These are another other good indications that they can ease quantitative easing, and they can also ease any more rate increases, at least. So, didn't cut anything, but also didn't raise it. But there's more indication they're probably going to lower it over the next couple, month, uh, couple meetings. So I thought that was some newsworthy information to share with you. Uh, but today, the topic for the day is key terms you should know when applying for a loan or talking about real estate. So uh, let's go to slide number one here. What we're going to talk about is the key terms every home buyer should learn or at least know. Uh, let's go to slide number two. The first topic is going to be uh, mortgage, the actual term mortgage. It's a loan use, using your home as collateral. It also may be used to indicate the amount of money you can borrow with interest to purchase a home. The amount of your mortgage often is the purchase price of the home minus your down payment. So some people think uh, the home loan and mortgage are different, or I have had times where people will say, well, I want a home loan, but I don't want a mortgage. But really, it's the same thing. It's, it's kind of the same classification. So a mortgage is simply the loan you're getting to purchase or refinance an existing home. Uh, there's a, a kind of a funny term in the industry. When you look at the actual root word of mortgage, you've got mortgage, mort, which is slow death, and gidge, which is basically contract. So mortgage is a slow death contract. That's really what it is, and every state handles it a little differently, how it gets recorded against the property. But a mortgage is the loan you get to obtain a home. Now, um, 
a lot of people, I think, get intimidated by that word, but it's really it's just it's just how it works. It's how the mortgage industry works. Uh, the different types of mortgages you can get will be whether they're in first or second lien position, whether it's to purchase a home or to refinance. So there's different tiers of mortgage loans, but that's really the root word of what uh, a mortgage is. So let's go to slide number three. Number three is pre-approval letter. This is a letter you get from the lender that shows what they're willing to lend you for your home loan. This plus the understanding of your savings can help you decide what your target price or what you can actually get pre-approved for. So I'm a big believer in getting your pre-approval letter as soon as possible. What we do in a pre-approval is we'll review your credit, we'll review your income, we'll review your down payment, or if you don't have a down payment, which programs allow for 100% financing. I'm a big believer in starting this early. So recently I was selling a home and I had a, I was selling it for sale by owner. It needed some repairs to it, so I was just kind of testing the market with it. And I couldn't believe how many people reached out to me to purchase the home. But they didn't have a pre-approval letter yet. They didn't have down payment. Their credit was bad. But I was amazed at how many people were calling to get either seller financing or just see what options there were. But as soon as I told them they needed to do a fill out an application and review their financing options, a huge percentage of them just disappeared. They didn't even take the time to go through an application. And I'm telling you, this is such a crucial step if you're going to be buying a home. And you can't. You can't do it too early, but you can definitely do it too late. And I have all these people, oh, we just decided to wait. Well, what's going to change in six months? You don't have all the information you need to decide whether you can even buy a house or not without starting this very easy first step. But I know it can be intimidating. You got mortgage, application, credit checks, all these things kind of just shut people down for various reasons. Maybe because they know their credit's bad, or maybe they just don't want the credit hit and they don't want their score to go down. So I know it's intimidating, but there's a lot of things we can do with this pre-approval that will narrow down the homes you qualify for or help you to get to the point where in six months or a year, whatever it takes, you're in the best position possible to buy that home. Plus, homes will pop up on the market. There may be one in the neighborhood you want or square footage or bedroom bathroom count or something that pops up. If you haven't started this step first... Then you have to go do that before you can even start putting an offer in the home. It could be gone by the time you do that step. So it's really crucial to start this early because there's very few times where I've done an application for a client that we couldn't work on something to get them a better loan. A lot of it's credit, maybe paying down a credit card or paying off a credit card or, or disputing a collection account that's really old or, or maybe a, an account you didn't even know about that's still open. So having that first step, that pre-approval step is so crucial and it's free. It doesn't cost anything. It's not like you have to pay 100 bucks to get this whole thing started. You can have these conversations, start the application, be ready when the home hits the market, or get in a better situation by having a little bit of time to fix it. I can't tell you how many times people call me and say, I've got my lease expires at the end of the month. I got to move out. That doesn't give you a lot of time to fix anything. Or you're very limited on the homes that might be available just in that window. Where if you already have your ducks in a row, you're already starting to work on your file, when you do submit your offer, you can close faster so your offer can stand out. You'll know what your rates and terms are. You'll know what your payment is. You'll, you'll just be in a better position to start the pre-approval early. So I'm a big believer in that, and I have so many people, for whatever reason, wait on this first step. 
when instead of waiting, they could be working on strengthening their file. So I really, really recommend you start this this process earlier. You can go to my website at ryanbolton.com. I loan in Utah, Nevada, and you can apply right there or book an appointment. We can do a phone call. Uh, there's a little tab up at the top that's the Apply Now button. You can start it right there, and we can get working on exactly what loan programs you'll qualify for. All right, let's go on to another key term that you should know if you're going to be looking at a mortgage or buying real estate. Let's go to slide number four, I believe. This is credit score. This is a number that ranges between 300 to 850, depending on which credit bureau, that is based on an analysis and an algorithm of your credit history. You have three major credit bureaus, TransUnion, Equifax, and Experian. In the state of Utah, the repository is Experian. So if you're a lender or a creditor and you want to report to the credit bureaus, you have to start with Experian in the state of Utah. So typically, that's the lower score in Utah's average credit scores. Then you can report to the other two. Some lenders just do one, like collection companies or medical collections. Sometimes they just do one. And it can be on the state they're based out of, so maybe it's not Experian. But generally in Utah, I see that the credit scores are lower with Experian and higher with Equifax because less gets reported to those other bureaus in Utah. But when we do a mortgage loan, we pull all three. We take the middle of the three credit scores. So we don't add them together and divide it by or anything like that. It's just whatever happens to be the middle of those three credit scores. And I can't tell you how many times I've seen a credit score that is lower on one of the other two bureaus that we could adjust or dispute or something reported, like a medical collection or something like that, that we can get removed and get that score up. But knowing why the score is the way it is, you can understand how to help it go up. Now, if you're getting into the 800 credit score range, which is in the top 1% of credit, that's going to take a lot more time. But if you're, say, a 620 score, and a lot of loans kick in at 660, there's a lot that you can do to get your score at least to 660. Last time I checked, the Utah average was 683. In Nevada, it was actually even a little bit lower at 669. So those are kind of the averages. So when you're below that, you're below average, and obviously above average when you're above that. But most mortgage loans are based on 20-point tiers. So you get the same rate if you're a 621 up to 640, then 640 to 660, and so on and so forth. So knowing why your credit is the way it is can help you to get a better credit score if you know what to work on. Now, I've had a lot of people that start working on their credit, and it gets worse. There's right ways to do it. And that's where the review, that pre-approval, and working with me, I can say, hey, go do X, Y, and Z, and your score will go up better than just thinking you know how to do it. And I've, every time I've talked to people, they always say, well, I'm going to go pay this collection, this one, and this one. I say, well, that's actually going to lower your score. And they're like, wait a minute, I'm paying the collection. Why would my score go down? So that's where that review really helps you, because I can show you why paying that card instead of another one can actually lower your score. Now, if you're trying to get in the upper end, you will have to pay these things off. But you don't want to take steps backwards if you're in a short window when you can do it correctly, when there's ways you can work on your credit that will help it go up quicker and get you at least to those minimum scores that will get you 100% financing or a better loan, that type of thing. But it's amazing. So many more doors open up on lending if you can get to that 660 credit score. Now, sure, we can do a loan down to 590, but you're not going to get the best loan. And it's so easy to get it to 620 or 660 if you have the time and the knowledge of what to work on. So credit scores are incredibly important. Now, in my, in, in my experience as well, I've only seen maybe five clients in 25 years that had all three scores in the 800s because their 
algorithm, the formula they use, TransUnion doesn't go quite as high. It's just the math that it uses doesn't go as high. So getting that score over 800 is really, really good. But if you're over even 740, you're really in the top tier. It doesn't make a huge difference once you hit 740. And it's funny, I'll have clients tell me too, they'll say, well, my credit score is like 28 or something like that, like a two-digit number, but it's always a three-digit number. I've never seen a four-digit credit score either. So it is pretty funny that that uh, I have people tell me what their scores are, and they always come up with these weird numbers sometimes. So uh, hey, Sean, can I a uh, question pipe, for me. Pipe yeah. in with a uh, credit, because I've, I've been up and down the credit uh, uh, scale in my life. Okay. So you have, uh, obviously, uh, the, the three different reporting agencies. Mm -hmm. Then I have a different one, I think, from one bank. I have one from another bank. And then I got Credit Karma that I that I uh, mm. signed up for and was watching. <clears throat> Excuse me. Suggestions as to how to monitor and fix your credit while I start to cough. Yeah, no problem. So, <laughs> so really, the credit bureaus, um, depending on what type of loan you're trying to apply for, will pull a little bit different data. Mortgage is obviously the biggest debt. They're pulling as much as they possibly can. They have a mortgage score that's kind of built in. So it can be a little different than if it's a car loan. Also, a lot of the ones you get for free, like True Credit or FreeCreditReport.com or True Credit, some of these, they're taking an educated guess because they're not actually pulling the credit. And a lot of them will use what's called Vantix score, which is a higher scoring model than FICO. Why that's out there, I have no idea. It floats around, and I see people that call me and say, hey, my, my uh, true credit says I'm a 620 or whatever. Then I pull it, and it's like a 550 or a 560. A lot of it has to do with the fact that that Vantix scoring starts like 100 points higher. I think it's like 80 points higher than a FICO, just right off the bat. So those free ones that use that Vantix, you'll even see it on there. That algorithm starts 100 points higher. Like its its base number, I think, is 380 instead of 300. So it's really deceiving. I don't even know why it's floating around out there. I don't know any lender that uses that score. But it is something where I, I have a ton of people that say, hey, I pulled my score through one of these free services or credit monitoring, and they say it's a 620 or 640, and we pull it, and it's dramatically less. It's just that starting model. It's just a little bit different. That's where actually getting a pre-approval and actually applying will get you your true FICO score, not Vantix, and it'll be something that um, you can know why the score is the way it is when you're actually applying for an actual loan. And some of these um, change daily. I mean, you can have something reported at the first of the month or the 15th of the month or the 20th of the month, and if you pull it within those ranges, sometimes the score can even change between lender to lender. One other thing I'd like to mention on credit inquiries, Credit inquiries have changed to where now they allow what's called a shopping period. So if you're going to apply for a car loan at the dealership and they pull your credit like 10 times, it only counts now as one inquiry if it's a similar inquiry. So a car loan, mortgage loan, something like that. That way you're not getting dinged every single time and all of a sudden get a worse rate because now your credit scores drop because of all the inquiries. But once you pass that shopping period, the inquiries hit you harder than before. So they allowed a little bit of a break because they knew people were out here shopping for loans. And even the lenders and regulators encourage you to shop for loans. But if every time you ding your credit two and three and four and five points, suddenly the last lender you look at may have a better rate at your higher score. But now that you've pulled it so many times, now you're not getting the better rate. So that's something that's dramatically changed. And credit inquiries only hit your score for about 90 days anyway. Now, if people ask me, why does a credit inquiry even hurt my credit score? Well, if I'm a lender and I see you have five credit inquiries, the credit bureaus haven't caught up to what you did with that inquiry. Well, I don't know if you got five car loans, five mortgage loans, five whatever that don't have time to report to the credit bureau for your debt ratio or what loan that you got with it. So it's important to let the credit kind of catch up after you've had a bunch of inquiries. So part of that 
inquiry hit is to just kind of cap it to make sure you don't go out and get 10 new visas, 10 new credit cards, 10 new cars, mortgages. It just allows for a little time to let the credit bureaus catch up. So credit is something I do almost every single day. There's always little things you can do to improve your credit score if you know why the score is the way it is. And that's part of my job is to say, hey, if you went and did X, Y, Z, you could see a 20-point jump to your score. Now, when you're in the 740 range, there's not much more you can do. You're in the top tiers. But there's easy things you can do from 620, 640, kind of in that 600, 700 range that can really help your score. All right, let's go on to another key term. I think we're on to number five, I believe. Is that what we got? Let's do this one. Yep, okay. So next one is affordability. This is a number that gets tossed around a lot with affordable housing, gets talked around a lot about homes are not affordable now as they used to be. So I think it's important to know what affordability really means. It's a measure of whether someone earns enough to qualify for a loan on a typical home based on the most recent sales price, the income, and the mortgage interest rates. So what is affordable for one person might be different for another person, but part of our loan and part of our pre-approval process is to find out what their debt ratio is and what they can actually afford and pay back. Now, I've had a lot of times where we can do a loan for someone more than what they really are comfortable with, maybe because they know their other expenses, they kind of know what they want to pay every month, but it happens the other way around too. I have people that think they can afford a lot more than what they really can. So knowing what your payment's going to be allows you to shop for the right home. So it's very important to have that payment amount figured out. Like $2,500 will only go so far based on the interest rates and based on your income. So knowing what that range is, you can better prepare yourself for the homes you're going out to look for. There's nothing worse than going out looking at a home for $500,000 and find out, oh, I can't even come close to affording that. But I've seen the other side way more often where somebody thinks, well, I can only afford $1,000 a month or I can only afford $1,500 a month. And so they start looking at homes in that price range, realizing they can do more. One of the best ways to free up affordability is putting less money down. So if you got this down payment of 20 or 30 or 40 grand, whatever you have, a lot of times that money can go further paying off debts than on the mortgage loan. So part of my job is to say, okay, yes, you can put 30 grand down on the house. But what if we do 10 grand instead, take the 20 and remove other debts? So maybe you got a car loan or a visa or other debts that are out there that can save you more per month, which then can free up more buying power so you can actually get the home that you want. You can be, get pretty discouraged if your budget's only 200000 especially here in Washington County. But if you get it to two fifty, dollars if you can get it to three, a lot more homes open up. And it's amazing how fifty grand. I mean, when people think fifty grand, they think seven hundred bucks a month, like a car loan. That's kind of the number most people think of. But on mortgage, it's a lot different because rates are usually lower. They're fixed for thirty years, so that fifty grand ends up being not that much more if you can free up your budget in other areas. And that's where affordability and looking again at the pre-approval and saying, okay, here's option A, here's option B. Here's how you can kind of maximize your dollar spent and have less debt and afford maybe the home you actually want, maybe a square footage you need, bedroom, bathroom, garage, all the things you want in a home. So part of that pre-approval and knowing what your affordability is and how to maximize that will allow you to get a lot more home. I've even seen situations where people have money, maybe they sold a house, they've got these large down payments, and they think, I'm just going to roll all the equity into the next house. Well, a lot of times it's like, maybe there's better places to put that money. Maybe savings, emergency funds. It could be uh, paying off all other debts. So all you have is the new house payment. It's at least worth running the numbers. 
Most of the time, when I talk to a client, we kind of find a number that seems to work because they just didn't know their uh, numbers existed. They just thought, well, no, I just roll my equity because I want the payment. I want to pay off the house as quickly as possible. But I look at it and say, hey, maybe we can take that hundred grand, reinvest it other places. <clears throat> maybe it's something that there's other debts that can be getting rid of, or just have it earning enough interest somewhere else that you have that emergency fund so you don't have to borrow against the house again or other creditors. So you become your own bank in a lot of ways by keeping that money more liquid than when you put it down on a home. I've talked about this a lot. The only way you get your money back from a down payment is selling or refinancing. The home's value goes up or down regardless of what you owe. doesn't matter if you're 100% financed or only owe 10% of the home. It doesn't make it worth more or less. It's totally market-driven, not what you actually owe on the property. So if you have to sell or refinance to get to that money, then it's a lot harder. Or maybe you can't or can't get rid of, can't get all of it. You can't ever get a loan that's 100% financing after you own it. So refinance is never going to pull all the money back out. Where if it's already in an account, already earning interest, and is in certain other vehicles, it's a way better way to be more secure on the home instead of just having all this equity you can't even get to. So let's run to another slide now. I think we got slide number six, I believe, is where we're at. Okay. Uh, this one is down payment. Now, down payment typically ranges from about 3.5% on the very low end. Um, so I've had clients that say, well, I've got $1,000 down or I got $2,000 down. Again, using car loans as kind of the base number. Um, but on a mortgage, the minimum down is typically 3 3.5%. There is a program at 3 but the most common is at 3.5%. Why half? I don't know. That's what FHA has always been is 3.5%, up to about 20%. And this is based on the purchase price of the home or the appraised value, whichever is less. So what that means is let's say you've got a $500,000 home you're going to buy, and that's the sales price, but it only appraises at $450,000. That means the loan to value the down payment is going to be based on $450,000 plus that fifty dollars that you're different. Now, that doesn't happen very often. You're not going to see very many times where people are paying more. We, we've seen it in the past. But anytime they were paying more, they're usually paying the cash for it, or maybe it's a custom home that has a lot of features on it that don't really show up in a valuation, but it's something the person wants, a view, a location, maybe certain amenities. Um, there's other things you can do to kind of overbuild a home that somebody would be willing to pay more for than really an appraisal can justify. But typically what happens is the sales price is less than appraised value. So that doesn't mean you can use the appraised value in that situation to not have a down payment or cash out some of the money when you buy a home. So it's always going to go off the lesser of appraised value or sales price to determine how much new money you have to put down. So this is down payment in, in essence. Now, that down payment has to be verified. So it has to come from a sale of another home or savings, 401k, retirement, however, or inheritance. I mean, there's a lot of ways people do come up with their down payment, but it is a percentage of the sales price or appraised value, whichever's less. Uh, let's go to the next slide real quick because I think it's the one that ties into this as well, which is number seven, I think. Are we on seven? Okay. Uh, this one is closing costs. This is on top of down payment. These are the fees required to complete the real estate transaction and are paid at the time you go to close on the loan. So your down payment plus your closing costs are what you have to bring to the title company. Now, closing costs can be included in the sales price if the seller is willing to pay that. And that really is one of the best ways to cover closing costs is just build it into the price, even if you have to raise the price a little bit. So let's say you're at 300000 You could offer them three hundred five and have that five grand included as part of the price. 
When you do the math on it, it's a lot cheaper to have your payment be $4 more, $5 more a month than bringing another $5,000 to the table. Now, there's certain closing costs that are actual costs of getting the loan and other things that just have to be brought to the closing table, like your homeowner's insurance. It's really not a closing cost in the sense of a fee, but it's something that needs to be brought to the closing table in order to cover your insurance, the homeowner's insurance for the first year. You'll also have the recording fees with the title company. You'll have certain insurances, like title insurance that insures the lien positions. So there's different categories of closing costs, but they all kind of add up to a certain number. Then you add your down payment, and that's the total amount you have to be brought that has to be brought to the closing. So you want to know those numbers, because a lot of people will have their down payment, but nothing for closing costs. Or even 100% financing programs still typically have closing costs on top of the sales price. So it's, I have a lot of people say, oh, I just want to roll it into the loan. It doesn't really roll into the loan. It rolls into the sales price. On a refinance, you can. You can do a higher loan amount, depending, again, on whether it's a refinance. But in most purchases, the sales price goes to the seller. The seller then has to agree to either pay the closing costs or you have to bring it in on top of your down payment. So again, you got to know that number. You got to know what to anticipate. Generally, closing costs run between about 2 to 3% of the loan amount. Uh, depending on what rate to fee combination that you're choosing. So I hope these key terms are really helpful. These are some of the ones you need to know, and this is where I can help you by going to ryanbolton.com, and we can get you started on pre-approval and all the things necessary to be a homeowner. Hope you have a wonderful day. This has been the Clear to Close podcast. Please submit your comments, questions, and topics for future episodes to cleartoclosepod at gmail.com. That's clear, the number two, closepod at gmail.com or ryanbolton.com. Please like, follow, and share. And until next time, this is the Clear to Close podcast. The views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of Patriot Home Mortgage, Equal Housing Lender, NMLS number 299717. This has been a production from a podcast studio.